I was 20 on the day of Kachi's funeral. It was in a large church in Northeast Ohio. A week earlier, he had overdosed in a motel room on heroin and crack. He died a few days later in a local hospital. He was one of my first big loves. We sat quiet and still in that church, and the pastor's words echoed through us when he softly lamented just how easily Kachi could have avoided going to hell. It echoed through us when he condemned us to the same fate. And what that pastor did that day, it was not the work of the gospel. Shame can never be the work of the gospel because it's death-dealing and not life-giving. Easter may be far from us on the calendar, but it's my favorite holiday and the foundation of my faith. I love it because it reminds me to honor and celebrate the simple and profound ways that people resurrect their lives every day. People change. They come back from the brink. They strive to bring their communities back to life. Easter reminds us that even when our families, our communities, and yes, sometimes our churches, seal the tomb and pronounce us dead to them, that we can still rise. Every day, people defy the destructive forces of the world by choosing dignity, grace, and connection. And it's so very worthy of our celebration. And I think it's what that pastor forgot that day, what too many of us have forgotten, that Christians are called to be an Easter people, a resurrection people. As longtime harm reductionist Marilyn Reyes says, we are meant to speak life into people, not death. When I think of resurrection, I think of my friend Dave, we had plans one day, but he never showed up, which happens sometimes. A week later, he told me that he'd overdosed that day. He died. He'd been sober for a few months and decided to use one more time. And because his tolerance was low, it killed him. Luckily, his mom came home unexpectedly, and he was able to be revived with naloxone but he'd been dead, and now he's alive. Real life resurrection. Naloxone, which is also sometimes called Narcan, is a medication that blocks the effects of opiates like Oxycontin, heroin, fentanyl, and carfentanil. Its ability to block opiates means that it can be used to stop or reverse an opiate overdose. It saves lives. In 2019, about 72,000 people died of a fatal overdose in this country, and 4,000 of them were Ohioans. Unfortunately, these numbers are only growing this year. <clears throat> in fact, here in Franklin County, the coroner says that fatalities have increased about 55% during the first quarter of 2020 alone. Many are quick to attribute this increase solely to the pandemic, but we know that it's more than that. What's worse is that we know that some of these deaths were preventable.
a grief that is sometimes too heavy to bear. Harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at minimizing the negative health, social, and legal impacts associated with drug use and drug laws. It focuses on supporting holistic positive change and on supporting people without judgment, coercion, discrimination, or without requiring that they stop using drugs as a precondition of our support. Simply put, it's meeting people where they're at and supporting them in keeping themselves as safe, healthy, and connected as possible without the condition of their sobriety. Harm reduction redefines recovery as any positive change because we understand that change is a process. So if you use a little less, that's an act of recovery. If you use sterile equipment, that's an act of recovery. If you wait to pick up until after the rent's paid, that's an act of recovery. And if you're completely abstinent, that's also an act of recovery. Theologically put, it is the recognition of what is divine within yourself and others. It's an expression of the unconditional love of God, the love of neighbor, the work of the gospel. Last year, across the country, grassroots harm reduction advocates distributed over a million doses of naloxone. Collectively, they've helped save countless lives. And those lives were not saved by paramedics or police or health departments. They were saved by people who use drugs. When given easy access to people, when given easy access to naloxone, the vast majority of overdose reversals are completed by people who use drugs because they are the true first responders in this overdose crisis. Community naloxone distribution in the US was started in the 90s by a man named Dan Big. He ran the Chicago Recovery Alliance alongside other people who use drugs. And he saw no reason why this medication that had been used in the hospital since the 70s could not also be used in the community. His work, which I would call a ministry, is profound and far-reaching. This life-saving work that we often associate with police or health departments was actually developed first by people who use drugs. This is important. Naloxone distribution, fentanyl testing strips, syringe access. These are all interventions that were created by people who use drugs in order to save and improve one another's lives. Because contrary to what we're often told, people who use drugs value their lives and the lives of their community. As Christians, we know something about how outcasts can save us, about how outcasts can change the world. But more than that, we know that God doesn't make outcasts. We do. And that to be a Christian means to reject any system that tells us that some of God's children are less worthy of love, community, and connection. The founders of harm reduction understood that to truly reduce harm, 
we must address the systemic harms that are trickling down into individual lives. We must shift power and resources to those who are most in need and who know the most from lived experience. People who use drugs are the leaders of our work to end overdose, so we ought not villainize, but instead listen and learn. After all, it sounds a lot like the gospel to me. Ohio has not yet learned from Dan Biggs' example or his generosity. Ohio is the only state that still lists naloxone as a dangerous drug and requires you to obtain a tedious and costly license in order to distribute it, severely limiting our community distribution. Licking County, next door to us, has banned syringe access. Even though the Center for Disease Control tells us that syringe access programs drastically reduce new HIV and hepatitis C infections, and that new users of syringe access programs are five times more likely to enter drug treatment and three times more likely to stop using drugs altogether. Ohio's Good Samaritan Law, which is meant to protect those possessing a minor amounts of drugs from prosecution if they call for help when somebody overdoses, excludes those who need it the most, those who are on parole or probation. And it doesn't allow you to receive that pro protection more than twice even though we know there are people in our communities reversing more than two overdoses in a day. This leaves people to fear for their lives and their freedom when they need help the most. This is why Ohio regularly has the second or third highest overdose death rate in the country. Ohioans do not use drugs more than people in other states, and we're not uniquely targeted by fentanyl. We simply aren't adequately equipping people with the tools they need to survive. As the church, we must recognize that we had a role in creating this crisis, and we have a role in ending it. People who use drugs have been doing the gospel work that the church has been avoiding. They've been preaching resurrection, and we're missing it. Worse than that, often we're making it harder we make it harder when we attach shame, stigma, and sin to drug use. We make it harder when we treat people who use drugs like the other instead of as a fellow child of God, whether they're living in the streets or sitting in the pew beside us. We make it harder when we allow people to wield the word addict like a weapon, essentializing someone down to just one part of who they are defining them by their struggle, and marking them as separate. As people of faith, we must confront and combat the shame, stigma, and judgment in our own hearts, pulpits, and congregations. We must also lobby legislators for the common sense policies we need to save our communities, like House Bill 205 locally, which would expand our Good Samaritan policy in Ohio and the BREATHE Act federally. We must push back against efforts to further criminalize people who use drugs and who sell drugs, which too often is simply just code for people of color and poor people. We must take bold moral action and support efforts to defund the police. 
As Christians, we are called to cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers of our own making, and cast out the demons of shame and stigma. So we must commit to lifting people up when systems let them fall, and intervening when systems would just let people die. Growing up in a white working class town in Northeast Ohio, I watched as my friends feverishly worked to obtain the American dream, a dream that felt promised to us, even if not consciously, largely because we were white. As white people, we were told that this country works for us. So when we couldn't pull ourselves out of the struggle and poverty that shaped our day to day, we didn't think that the system failed us. We thought we failed ourselves. And I watched as that feeling of failure, which is rooted in white supremacy, tricked people I love into believing that they were unworthy. A pain they sought to ease with substance use, which without access to harm reduction information, ultimately claimed many of their lives. We live in a time where white youth are being leveraged against communities of color, just as white women were in the civil rights era. A desire to protect the virtue, purity, and abstinence of white youth is fueling the violent policing and mass incarceration of people of color, as well as dehumanizing immigration policy at our borders. The subtext always being that people of color are responsible for the production and sale of drugs and are therefore a threat to innocent white children. Some of us might be familiar with the war on drugs. Maybe it conjures up images of eggs in frying pans or the phrase, just say no. What most of us don't know is that the war on drugs dates back to the 1930s and beyond and began as a racist attack on black and immigrant communities. The first anti-opium laws in the 1870s were an attack on Chinese migrants after white men feared losing their jobs on the railroad. Black men in the South were the target of the first anti-cocaine laws in the early 1900s, and Mexican migrants and Mexican Americans were the targets of the first anti-marijuana laws in the 1910s and 20s. In fact, that's why we use the word marijuana in this country instead of cannabis, because it sounded more Mexican and supported the criminalization of Mexican migrants as drug dealers and criminals. And we can hear these same attacks continue today when Donald Trump speaks about law and order or demands that we defend our borders. The original architect of the war on drugs was a man named Harry Anslinger. He was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and a widely known white supremacist. Targeting communities of color, especially black Americans, with drug charges and harassment was part of Anslinger's strategy to justify the existence and budget of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. In fact, Anslinger targeted famous singer Billie Holiday for her song, Strange Fruit, which protested the lynching of black Americans. Anslinger demanded she stop performing the song. And when she refused, he retaliated by regularly arresting her on drug charges 
and placing her under surveillance for decades, even going so far as raiding her hospital room and, cuff and handcuffing her to the hospital bed as she lay dying. To be clear, Billie Holiday was not put under surveillance because her drug use was a threat, but she was put under surveillance because she dared to resist white supremacy. This racist drug war continues to target black communities. We can see it in the murder of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her bed by police who were executing a no-knock warrant on suspected drug charges. We can see it when the police officer who murdered George Floyd looked casually around and said, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. In 1971, President Nixon formally declared the war on drugs. John Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's top advisors, recently offered a candid reflection on the foundation of this so-called war. He said, and I quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did, he concluded. Criminalization, racism, and white supremacy are the foundations of our drug policy. And every year, it costs Americans particularly Black Americans, their lives and their freedom. We can see it here in Ohio. White people are more likely to sell drugs, and all races use drugs at similar rates, but the highest increase of overdose deaths in Ohio are among Black men, and 43% of incarcerated Ohioans are Black. Racism and white supremacy fuels our understanding of drug use, which fuels policing, which fuels mass incarceration, which fuels overdose death. When the movement for black lives demands that we defund the police, they are asking in part for an end to this war, a war whose purpose and budget was grown out of anti-blackness, coercion and violence. The movement for black lives is a harm reduction movement. After all, like we said, harm reduction is about more than reducing risk. As Monique Tula, executive director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition says, harm reduction is a movement, one that shifts resources and power to the people who are most vulnerable to structural violence. As people of faith, we know that budgets are moral documents. And when the city of Columbus spends a third of its budget on policing, we are saying that God values systems of punishment and surveillance over systems of care and connection. But in the UCC, we commit to being in covenant with one another.
and with the world, which means we commit to caring for one another and remaining in right relationship. But violent policing ruptures that covenant, both by harming us and our siblings in Christ, but also by leaving us with the false impression that the hurt and harm in our communities is no longer our responsibility, but instead can be simply handled by just calling the police. Overinvestment in policing only allows suspicion and fear of one another to grow. Instead, the movement for Black Lives is asking us to deepen our moral imagination and ask what God really wants for us. Does God want no-knock warrants? Or does God want neighbors and neighborhoods made safe by abundance? Made safe through enough food to eat, enough homes in which to sleep, enough money for rent and leisure, enough helping hands. The movement for Black Lives is asking us to defund the police and invest in Black communities so that we can truly make our budgets match our morals. Because we know that God wants all of us to have life and have it abundantly. The movement for Black Lives is reminding us that when we reject fear and white supremacy, we all have enough. For this, many are calling the movement dangerous. For this, many are trying to cast them as political outcasts. But as Christians, we know something about how outcasts can save us and about how outcasts can change the world. Some of you may be thinking, I thought we were just talking about ending overdose today. Let me assure you, we are. After all, when Kachi began to overdose in that hotel room 15 years ago, it was racist drug policy that kept the person who was with him from calling for help, afraid that they would both be incarcerated instead of helped. Because black lives didn't matter, his life didn't matter. A legacy of anti-blackness and anti-immigrant policy left 72,000 people to die a preventable death last year. So in honor of Overdose Awareness Day, I'm gonna ask you to do two things. To believe in resurrection by learning to reverse an overdose and getting your own naloxone kit. And to honor our commitment to covenant by looking up the BREATHE Act, a federal bill introduced by the Movement for Black Lives and calling your representatives and your senators and asking them to sign on as a co-sponsor. Because we know that naloxone saves, but it's not enough. To end overdose, we must end the war on drugs too. The movement for black lives, the harm reduction movement, these are Easter movements striving to bring our communities back to life. And as Christians, we are called to be an Easter people, a resurrection people. Both these movements require the tough work of reclaiming dignity. Both require us to engage our own healing. They ask us to have a systemic understanding of our deeply personal pain.
They ask us to love ourselves and each other more deeply. It is truly the toughest form of love because it requires the transformation of all of us. It's messy and it's so very worth it. As followers of the gospel, we must speak life into people. So let us say loudly that black lives matter to God and matter to us. And let us name clearly that the children of God deserve better than the war on drugs. May we remember that the power of resurrection lives within us, in our hearts, in our hands. We need only choose it. We need only claim our legacy as an Easter people in this Good Friday world. <laughs>